We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna Defense needs to do its fucking job. You give up chunk yardage to the fucking Rams! The worst passing offense in football! We're making, we'll let him carve us up. Oh! Big thick! Kevinstein, the block at the right tackle. Oh, it's picked up on the play by Roby Coleman. And there he goes, a block into the house. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of the Rock Pal Report, everybody. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Kenny Elbert with a call from CBSSports.com. And me. Yours truly, with what was a moment that will live in infamy. You know, there I am. I've been drinking rum out of the bottle. You know, I've been trying to... I've been drinking liquor. I've stopped drinking beer. I'm just really getting after it because I'm nervous about this game. I'm getting frustrated. And I finally blow up like Vesuvius. And the Bills, almost like it was karma, decided to just serve me an ice-cold glass of shut the hell up. Oh, well, how about for starters... The whole video that that audio came from of you, two minutes and three seconds, and you did that 40 seconds after I hit record. It was gold. And you still, you had chicken wings going upstairs. And I remember your girlfriend was like, well, he's going to go upstairs in a minute. And it only, t- I was like, it takes five seconds. And 40 seconds in, and you're just going off about the defense. It was, it was beautiful. And then as soon as you end that sentence, pick six, Roby, Roby Coleman. Well, I'll be honest, I, I drink a bit and I get fired up a bit when I'm watching the Buffalo Bills. And then, and then you know, it just got away from me. And in that moment, you know, I really, I really thought, okay, really, really thought that everything was going to be, you know, everything was going to go to shit. And I was just watching the way our defense was playing and I exploded. And that's what I get for losing. That's what I get for losing my cool. It's, it's absolutely, uh, <laughs> I absolutely had it coming. So, guys, we have a packed show for you tonight, and we're going to, as always, kick it off with the Bills News Update. (laughs) 
At the top of the hour, the biggest news of the day, Sammy Watkins will not require additional surgery on his foot. According to uh, Ian Rappaport, Adam Schefter jumped on the train. Pretty much everybody in the know is stating that he's been cleared by the doctor who he went to for a second opinion. And that's fantastic news for Bills fans. You know, it means that if he's healthy, we can activate him come December and reinstall him back at the wide receiver one position. As long as we're in the hunt. Well, that's it. I'm hoping that if the Bills are still in contention at that point, he could be a huge boost to our offense. I mean, we're going to be playing teams like the Raiders and the Steelers in those first few games down the stretch there, and we could use all of the offensive firepower we can get our hands on. In other news, Chantrell Henderson has been activated back to the 53-man roster this week. He's going to definitely bring another boost. You know, obviously Cyrus Quandro still isn't practicing, but he proved his value early on as a depth tackle. He seems like he's really getting it. Now you're adding Henderson back to the mix. Back at the beginning of the season, I openly complained about how I didn't think our tackle depth was was going to be anything. I, I thought we were painfully thin at that position. And it turns out now we've got bodies. We've got guys that we know as soon as Quanjo gets healthy, we have four guys who we can plug in at either tackle position and not be afraid of what we're going to see in the field. That's huge. I mean, Chris, what is that, I mean, from just a depth pers- perspective, I mean, it, it alleviates some of my concern along the offensive line. It's interesting that the amount of production that we're getting out of Mills, Quanjo, in his limited time playing, has looked great. Mm-hmm. And now getting Chantrell, who coming out of college was that typical person, he's got first-round talent, but seventh round character. Oh, absolutely! No, it's gonna be it's gonna be huge to see what uh what this team looks like once we can get really finally healthy at that tackle position. Now to make room for him, our offseason acquisition Cole Anderson was moved to the IR. And he's been injured all offseason, and he only saw part time duty in two games. So I don't want to say he's not a loss because he's a player, and you know I got to respect that. But at the same time. He, I didn't see anything significant from him in those two games. It wasn't like he was a contributor on defense. He was mainly a special teams guy. That's what he was brought here to be. So having said that, best of luck to you, Colt Anderson. We'll figure out what happens with you next season. But um, you know, they're in the offseason. And yet somehow, the, my takeaway from his being sent to the IR is that Reggie Bush, I don't know, he's, he's got the luck of the devil, man. Did he even play on Sunday? I think he did. I, I, I feel like I remember him taking a snap. I don't know why, though. <laughs> I mean, it obviously wasn't anything great. Otherwise, I would have committed it to memory. But You would have blown up about it. Oh, I probably would have screamed at the TV and thrown my beer. I mean, <laughs> Thrown a chair. Oh, that happened. Oh, yeah. See, all the, <laughs> the video that made it out there, I mean, people don't even know. I, I can be a handful once the game turn, comes on. And then in the final piece of news here, Carlos Williams signed today to join the Pittsburgh Steelers practice squad. I love it. He's like a younger D'Angelo Williams. And hopefully, because he's on the practice squad, he'll get on the roster because he is currently sitting on both of my fantasy teams. Well, I'll be honest. I'm not shocked he chose the Steelers. You talk about the three teams he was being publicly linked to. You had the Steelers, the Jets, and the Bills. Out of those three teams, which one of them looks like they're going to make the playoffs? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. 
I believe his brother's there. And his brother's there. So, And you look at the fact that Bell's coming off a knee injury. He got injured last year. He's missed games in every season. So, he, And he's a clear upgrade over all of their current backups. Well, D'Angelo Williams has been good, but he's also old. So why not have mm-hmm. another capable running back in the uh, stall for the Steelers? I mean, I can't say that I'm not happy for the guy. Good luck to him. You know, I would have liked to have seen him come back here to Buffalo. And while it probably wasn't a deal breaker, I'm sure that all of the bullshit that Bills fans threw at his fiance last week over Twitter and Facebook and everything else over this situation probably didn't help. Not saying it did. Those are just my two cents. So that brings us to this week's Week 5 Recap. Strap yourselves in, guys. Grab a beer and get comfortable because we're going to be here for a minute. First off, we're going to start with the stats of the game. The things that stuck out to me the most is I'm just digging through the aftermath of this football game. LaShawn McCoy, 18 rushes, 150 yards, almost eight, eight yards per carry. I mean, what can you say? He paced our offense and was really the only consistent part of it throughout the entire afternoon. Todd Gurley, 23 rushes, 78 yards and a touchdown, 68 yards after contact and forced eight missed tackles. Gurley's overall numbers weren't there on Sunday, and it's a big part of the reason why the Bills won the football game. But the fact is, is that he generated 68 yards after contact. And the fact that he let, he, he now leads the league in forced in missed tackles. I mean, the guy, you can see his physical talents when you watch him play. The rest of the team is just so bad that they drag him down with them. Next up is Case Keenum. 21 of 31, good for 67%, 271 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions, one of them went back for a touchdown. Given my pre-pick six tirade that went viral on the Bills Fanatics Instagram account, you'd have thought that Case Keenum was doing a much better job at throwing the football on Sunday. My apologies. And then Roby Coleman, targeted three times, zero catches allowed, two interceptions, one defensive touchdown. By the numbers, he would appear to have been the best defensive back on the field for the entire, I don't know, both teams. Nikel Roby was the best cornerback on the field. You know, after all the talk about guys like Stephon Gilmore, Ron Darby, Tremaine Johnson, EJ Gaines, Nikel Roby was the most dominant secondary player on the field for either team. It's crazy. And it earned him AFC Defensive Player of the Week, which is awesome. That's two weeks in a row now that the Bills have won that award. And now for everybody out there who's probably already seen it, as we were alluding to earlier and as we put in the intro, I was inadvertently the star of an Instagram video that got over 14,000 likes and uh, views on the uh, Bills Fanatics Instagram account. I was in the, you know, when you start drinking rum out of the bottle at halftime, it's probably a bad sign for the rest of your afternoon. But I was in the middle of expressing my extreme displeasure at the way our secondary was playing. But I'll say this, after watching about 10 minutes of the All-22 footage this week as I was trying to get ready to recap the game, I realized I was going to need to get an entire bottle of hot sauce for all of the crow that I was going to have to eat. I mean, it starts off here. We're, we're talking about the yardage allowed by Case Keenum seems like it was by design once you actually look at the way the defense played. 
Okay. In 2015, Case Keenum averaged 138 yards passing per game. You know, now he's in this season, he's averaging a 57% completion rate. We were allowing him to get 67% along with chunk yardage in the third quarter where he was consistently getting first downs on second down. They didn't even need to see a third down. And head over to the Bills' Instagram account to watch that video so you can hear Drew emphasize the word chunk yardage. <laughs> that's Bill. That's the Bills Fanatics Instagram account. So I will uh, Case Keenum on that throw mm-hmm. to Roby Coleman. He completed his previous eight passes. Oh, he was on a hot streak, and I was losing my mind over it. I couldn't understand what I was seeing. But then I took a look. Like I said, I looked back at the tape, and this is what I have came away with. They did not play any kind of true press coverage on the outside. What they did was they played a lot of shallow zones with safeties and linebackers mixing into the middle of the field. Whenever you saw the ball get snapped, defensive backs had their eyes in the backfield first. Because you want to stop Gurley. What else Absolutely. are they going to have? Absolutely. They committed their entire defense to stopping Gurley and to make Case Keenum beat them. That's why they were content. The same way I said that you know earlier, I said that the, the Rams are going to give us a shell. They're going to try to be a bend but don't break defense. They're never going to let us get over the top on them. But what, so we're going to have to be accurate in the middle of the field if we want to move the ball or run the ball up the middle well. Well, we did a lot of that, but... What I was seeing from our defense was kind of the same thing, and I wasn't prepared for that. I thought we would press them a lot more, and so I equated that to failure. And for that, I'm wrong. That's my mistake, and I'll admit that. See, I would have wanted press if you're gonna if you're gonna guard Tavon Austin. You know, he's like what Sammy Watkins was doing in college: a lot of wide receiver screens, mm-hmm. short passes. Keep him in front so of you. I figured you would in. That kind of scenario, wouldn't you want to play man and press him? No. See, in that type of a scenario, what you would want to do is if you know that they have a fast receiver who's capable of being kind of slippery and making, you know, he makes very good cuts, takes good angles to the ball, you want to keep that guy in front of you. Don't let him get behind you because Tavon Austin's fast enough that if he gets away in case Keenum uncorks a deep one, he could just run away with it, kind of like Marquise Goodwin does to people. So the fact is they made their game plan about keeping, letting him chew up this yardage in front of them, but keeping the play in front of them, which isn't what I expected from their defense at all. And it worked. I mean, it absolutely worked. I mean, the mixed coverages in the middle of the field completely kept Keenum you know, from getting comfortable in the pocket. You could see him hesitate, which is why we finished with as many pressures and sacks and quarterback hits. He had to roll out and throw the ball away a number of times. I mean, he thrived off the dink and dunk passing approach, but it also led to it sacks and interceptions that ultimately won the game for us. We finished with four sacks in total. And per pro football focus, if you look at the chart that they put out, the pressure and disguise plan worked. When not under pressure, Case Keenum had a quarterback rating of 105.4. It's pretty damn good, right? When we pressed him, well, when we dropped back in zone but then used blitzers to kind of cut, you know, you let that defensive line go to work and maybe send a rogue blitzer here and there. When he was under pressure, his quarterback rating dropped to 17.2. That's an 80, what, (laughs) 86 point drop, 87? I don't even know. I can't do math right now. No, he he sucked under pressure. But if you watch that video on the 
Bill's Fanatics Instagram account, you, you didn't like it. Oh, I hated it. I was critical of the way the secondary was playing because I thought it was a failure to execute, and I didn't see the overall game plan. I, I went into it with... And I think that's something, and I'll admit that. I think it's, and I bet you Eric Turner over a cover one would say the same thing. Because you study football and because you think you know X's and O's and you think you know what a team should do, you know, I'm putting should in quotes, you go into a game with a certain idea of what they need to do to win. And when they're not doing it, you equate that to failure. But there's a reason they get paid millions of dollars a year and that I'm sitting on a chair, you know, a bar stool in my basement yelling at the TV. There's a reason I'm where I am. There's a reason they are where they are. See, I could only imagine the kind of stuff I could have got on camera oh, had we had lost that game to Case Keenum. Chris, there's no everyone. Even my girlfriend knows the policy that there is there's no no piece of furniture is safe. And no. I t- <laughs> flipping coffee tables or. <laughs> Throwing chairs, you broke a piece off the bottom of the bar. Hey, that was. Hey, we don't know that that wasn't broken when I when we moved in. I don't know. There's no way to prove that. So then, moving on, recap of the game: good tie rod and bad tie rod. We saw it all. We saw it all. Okay, he threw a pair of touchdown passes on Sunday, and yet at the same time, only gained 124 yards through the air. You know, but he had 124, and he had a passing touchdown. Two. Two passing touchdowns. Two passing touchdowns. Two a good passing, one Hunter. Two passing touchdowns and had one fan do a cartwheel. I mean, he just continues to be Jekyll and Hyde on a week-to-week basis. His passer rating actually increased from 81.2 to 90.9, according to Pro Football Focus, when the Rams tried to pressure him. I mean, and that just speaks to the fact that he's adept at buying time with his legs. and you know, It buys that time for his wide receivers to get open. Perfect example of that is a Justin Hunter touchdown. Your cartwheel touchdown. Justin Hunter wasn't immediately open, but because Tyrod kind of ran around in the backfield enough to buy himself time, Justin Hunter found himself with nobody on him and was able to get that couple feet of separation to just high point the ball and bring it in for a touchdown. I feel like Tyrod's doing that more often this year than he did last year where he would you know, if oh, he definitely play would have tried break, to run last yeah, year. Last year he would run, and there was almost Woods made a great catch on a third down where Tyrod scrambled towards the sideline and he threw, and Woods had to jump for it mm-hmm. and got it. And I was, I was like, as it happened, I was like all nervous because Tyrod easily could he had nobody in front of him. He could have easily ran for a first down, but decided to throw it instead of run. Well, so and I'm, I'm seeing that a lot more. Well, so maybe that speaks to the fact that he really is trying. You know, he's really trying to get into a rhythm as a quarterback. He's trying to learn to throw first instead of just run all the time. Because I bet you if he trusts his natural instincts more often, he could probably get a lot more rushing yardage on his own than throwing the ball. But I think he genuinely wants to try to show because he's he's trying to earn his contract extension. He's trying to show that he can throw the ball. Yeah, but I think we both agree that so far he's not performing to get a contract extension at the end of the year. Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, at the same time, for as much praise as I'm giving him right now, on multiple plays, he left the pocket way too early. And he's also without the one staple of his game that he could always rely on, which is the deep ball. I mean, we only attempted one pass of more than 20 yards on Sunday. I think that has to do with the you know the lack of personnel. I mean, he's trying to throw deep balls to Goodwin. He's trying to throw deep balls to Powell. They're too short to catch them. 
where he's used to being able to throw them. He's used to being able to loft one up to Sammy and Sammy just goes and gets it. Without that, without that size of a receiver, you can tell he's hurting with the deep ball. And that was a staple of his game. He would uncork that three or four times a game just to kind of back safeties off, which helped open up running lanes. Now, we don't have that. I mean, we're hoping that Justin Hunter at some point can start providing that. But so far, what does he have, one catch? I think Hunter's got one catch. He's got one catch for a touchdown. I still don't see him being an impactful member of this team until I see him being able to carry a safety and a wide receiver down the sideline and make a deep catch. So ultimately, I think that that's hurting Tyrod's ability to do what he does best because that was supposed to be a strong point of his game. And now he's having to lean on something that he's not that good at yet, which is the underneath passing. Okay, we've got right now we're riding a three game win streak. All right, I'll have everyone know the last time we had a three game win streak, 2011, also the year of my first one night stand. (laughs) So we have three wins: Arizona, L.A., New England. If I were if I were to tell you, I want you to give me three reasons why we won all three of those games. Would you have Tyrod in there? No, not at all. Exactly. This is why. This is why we we both don't think he deserves an extension because you're going to need your quarterback to win you some games. Right now, he hasn't done it. No, no, not by any means. And I'll be honest, it's it, it's tough. I mean, we we really, really, really need him to step up because there's going to come a, there's going to come a day. When we need to dig out of a hole, we've been lucky. I think we, all three of these games that we've won, we've had the lead. We've had the lead in our defense did everything they could to protect it, and then our running game got us to where we need and got us to where we needed to be. You know, we got some timely turnovers, we got some defensive scores, we've got a lot of things going for us right. There's going to come a day where everything goes wrong, and when that day comes, I want to know that I have a quarterback who can put some points on the board and get us close. Yeah, and the only game that he's ever done that in was the Tennessee game last year. Yeah. But luckily, we don't have to, we haven't had to lean on him so far because the rushing attack, once again, comes through for us. I mean, our running game was the engine that drove our offense. All right, I want a 32 belly option on two on two. Ready? Now, LaShawn McCoy led the way, and of his 150 yards, 100 of it came while running behind the left side of our offensive line. Now, that makes sense, considering that's our stalwart left tackle, Richie Incognito, fresh off a contract extension, who became an integral part of our offensive line last season, and Eric Wood, you know, our longtime center. Those guys are the guys that you want to know in a football game you can lean on. You know, you want to be able to run off left guard. You want to be able to run off left tackle consistently, considering their their age, their experience, you know, their their the amount of time they've spent playing in the system and their level of talent, right? Yeah, I believe I asked you last week with uh, not St. Louis, L.A. The L.A. showing some uh, some blitzes that I figured, oh, draw plays probably will work against Los Angeles, and it seems like we burned them a couple of times on draw plays. I can distinctly remember a play where um, Sean McCoy. Followed Felton into a hole, and it was that that long run like down to the mm-hmm. goal line. Felton didn't then touch anyone until like no. the five. <laughs> Felton was, but and I said that last season. Felton's a guy who has a role on this team, but the way Lashawn McCoy runs, he doesn't necessarily need 
a fullback because he he makes up the play as he sees it. That's you know, he we, doesn't follow a design trajectory. And we even touched on that last season in some of our podcasts where McCoy is sh- so shifty that while Felton sees the play and he hits where he thinks the hole is, McCoy might have different eyes yeah. and bounce it to McCoy the outside. McCoy just sees a different angle. And so all of a sudden, he's not blocking anybody because everyone's converging on the running back and he's taking a different trajectory. In fact, I would almost say he would have scored a touchdown had he not tripped over Felton at the one-yard line. Well, Felton was confused because he didn't touch anybody for like 50 yards. Oh, but I give him credit for being able to stay in front of Shady for that long. I give him a lot of credit. But now we're talking about what Shady did. I think even even more importantly is how he did it. Now, you would assume that they would want to try, you know, Aaron Donald, yes. The Rams were depleted on the defensive line, and I understand that. You know, I think that this game would have gone a lot differently had they had all of their defensive line starters. I think you would have seen a, it would have, we wouldn't have been as easy for us to move the football on the ground. But I think the most important part of how they ran was that you would think conventional wisdom would say, run away from Aaron Donald. You know, he's the most dynamic defensive line, one of the best D linemen in the league. He's clearly the most dynamic defensive player on their team. You don't want to go anywhere near him, right? Wrong. On McCoy's three biggest runs of the game, you know, the Bills allowed Donald to get minor penetration and then just double teamed and walled him off with either, with a guard and center combo, whether it was right guard, left guard. What they would do is they'd let him come at the line, they'd wall him off with the double team, and then just run right past him. What you see happening on tape is that the defense would line up with Aaron Donald on one side of the line, and then they would line up, they would kind of almost shift and play the rest of the defense on the other side, thinking that they could compensate for the fact that there was no D lineman over there. I don't think they ever expected us to have the balls to just run on Aaron Donald, but we did it. Our our offensive line executed those plays so well and it led to not only McCoy's big game, but our ability to stay ahead in this football game. Yeah, you could tell that they were definitely game planning for it, and that's amazing to see out of our offensive coordinator. And Anthony Lynn is really, really endearing himself to me over the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah, we're gonna we fired our OC, and now our new OC, who'd never been an OC ever, we're on a three-game win streak. It's, it's amazing against Arizona. New England with Brissett, and then L.A. It's crazy. And now to close this whole thing out, I've got some quick hits, just some things that were going through my head as I'm re-watching, looking at the stats. First off, Jeff Fisher is a confusing motherfucker. He doesn't go for a touchdown attempt on fourth down from the five-yard line. You know, opting not to gamble, you know, because you don't want to gamble in the NFL. Even he, if you he, kick a field goal, you still need a touchdown. He decided to take the easier three points. But then he tried to fake a punt from inside of his own 35? Yeah, I wouldn't have called it, but I didn't think it was going to work. You know, that's how those things are. Uh, we practiced it all week. We had to look, and uh, it didn't work. You know? So I'll take that. They, they executed on practice, and they didn't execute it there. You know, I thought if, if that thing works, it's, you know, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. So, um, but it didn't, and um, they don't always work. But um, that type of approach... In special teams has taken us a long ways. That's Jeff Fisher talking about the ridiculous idea to run a fake punt from your own 35. Good stuff? That's backwards, buddy. What? (laughs) 
What an idiot! Oh, what a loser! Moving on, Adolphus Washington had his first career sack. And outside of a, you know, a drive-extending personal foul call where he literally just grabbed Case Keenum by the face mask and threw him on the ground, Chris was watching the TV, and I heard, oh, Adolphus Washington called for the personal foul, and I yelled out, oh, that's bullshit. And Chris goes, no, that, that was a good call. I turned around in time to see the slow-motion replay of him just getting him by the face and just chucking him on the ground. It was, You know, outside of that one play, Adolphus Washington probably had the best game of his career so far with Buffalo. I mean, he was effective in the run game. He was good at rushing the passer. According to Pro Football Focus, he graded out at an 84.9, which was higher than Aaron Donald finished at 84.7. Now, I'm not trying to say they're the same player, but what I'm saying is, is that if he can continue to develop and improve in this defense, we might have gotten a steal in the third round and a guy who's going to provide some quality depth on the D-line. Let's not forget, after the draft, Doug Whaley said Adolphus Washington, day one starter off the bus. Hey, and look at he ha- he's had to be. You know, he's had to be a starting, I guess kind of a rotational guy, but he's had to be one of those guys who's being counted on for the majority of the game to, to you know, show up and make plays. And he's done that. I've been really impressed by his play. And then, for, you know, since we're talking about it, for the whole fire Doug Whaley crowd, here's some food for thought for each and every one of you. Hey, about that, like that, that's, this stuff like really irritates me. Like the guy that I used to work with that texts me, we should fire Whaley for Darius's injury. We should fire Whaley for Watkins' injury. It's not like Doug Whaley committed these injuries on these players. Like he's the butcher on Hulk Hogan in Clash of the Champions and oh, coming wow. out with a pipe and hitting Hogan <laughs> in the back. And he's not hitting, he's not injuring these players. It's, it's just the nature of the game that Watkins gets injured. He wasn't injured in college, comes to the pros. Unfortunately, he's injured. Darius. You know, what was he doing over the four weeks? He couldn't be at the team facility. You know, that's you know that's a so- hamstring, soft tissue injury. All I know is this. For everyone out there who wants to bag on Doug Whaley, here, here's a couple of things I want to run by you. Okay, first off, Robert Blanton. Robert Blanton's been a solid special teamer for us. You haven't heard his name much because he hasn't had to play. But he's a former starter who had 110 tackles a couple of years ago with the Vikings. He's a capable guy, and he's on our roster waiting in the wings. Laurenti McCray. We traded a seventh-round pick to Green Bay for Laurenti McCray. And when I said it, none of you knew who the hell he was. I didn't. I, I did some research. I figured it out. I'm like, okay, this guy. He was drafted to be an outside linebacker, but clearly that's a position Denver's too deep at. They couldn't re-sign him. So Green Bay re-signed him. But... They have Clay Matthews. You know, their, st- their starters at outside linebacker are established. So he was going to be a core special teamer, maybe see some playing time on defense. We traded for him, and he has supplemented our depth incredibly. I mean, the guy's been out there for probably about 32% of our overall snaps. He's got one and a half sacks and two forced fumbles on the season. If you told me in the offseason that we'd get that type of production out of him for a seventh-round pick... I would have told you it's a steal. Doug Whaley traded for him. Why? Because he's a good scout. Okay? Say what you will about his, you know, dynamic as a general manager. But as a scout, the guy knows talent when he sees it. 
Moving on, Zach Brown, NFL leader in tackles with 39. You know, he's got a, two forced fumbles and a sack on the season. There again, another guy that Doug Whaley went out and picked up that nobody else seemed to want. And yet he is playing like an animal in our defense. We had, you can say that we had Zach Brown penciled in as plan A. And the fact that we were able to move up to grab Raglan, that was like a plan B thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And then Ledger Doosable. Okay, he's been solid in our rotation. You know, he's he was with the Jets. Everyone said when you know when Rex wanted to bring him in. Oh, it's just Rex stockpiling the things with his stockpiling the roster with former Jets. The fact is, is that all of these moves have to go through Whaley. Whaley saw something in that guy and he brought him in, and he's been a solid guy in our rotation. And he has one and a half sacks, four tackles, and two of them from for a loss on the season. Out of a depth player, that's pretty damn good. How about this? Coming into the season, I were, if I was to tell you our weakest position group on the defense would probably be linebacker. Oh, those guys are both of our interior linebackers are in the top 10 for overall metrics, according to Pro Football Focus. Five weeks in, can we not say that the linebacker core is our best position? One of them's a Whaley draft pick, and one of them's a Whaley free agent find. So for all of you out there, and then, you know what? I'm going to keep it going. This actually bleeds right into our hero and zero of the week. Another, our hero this week is another Doug Whaley kind of find. Yes, it did run through Rex Ryan, but again, it has to come through Whaley with Whaley's approval. I'm sure he watches tape on these guys. He approves of them coming to the team. Lorenzo Alexander. Because they're winners. Winners get to do what they want. I mean, the guy has the nickname One Man Gang according to Pro Football <laughs> Reference. Alexander is currently the NFL leader in sacks with seven. Okay? 18 tackles and two forced fumbles. He was a force on Sunday. Three sacks. He was making plays in the run game. He was chasing the quarterback out of the pocket. He even laid a monster hit on a guy in special teams. And here he is talking post-game about his performance. I mean, obviously my role when I first got here was to play special teams and be a rotational player. And due to circumstances, whether it was injuries or guys being released, uh, I've kind of accelerated to the starting role and have done a good job of taking advantage of the opportunities that I've been given. Uh, I think Kyle Williams and Jerry Hughes do a good job of drawing blocks and pushing the pocket. And oftentimes I'm able to finish off and, and make plays one-on-one. But Kyle does a great job of studying all the guys, setting up games based on their protection for us, and it allows me to come free a lot of times. If you're in the NFL, you can play. And uh, I think our guys are doing a great, uh, great job of taking advantage of their opportunities um, understanding the game plan, understanding with the team how they're attacking us, and anytime you're prepared, you can go out there and make plays. A lot of times in the league, it's just guys getting that opportunity. You can have great players being backup players, and then when the stars go down, you get your opportunity and you shine, you can definitely find yourself excelling in this league very quickly. That audio comes to you from buffalobills.com. I mean, talk about a guy who bought, he single-handedly made Manny Lawson expendable. I'll be honest, I flipped out after week two when we weren't getting pressure on the quarterback and we weren't getting to where we needed to be defensively. I was panning the front office. I'm like, this is a game where we should, could have used Manny Lawson. Since week two, though, the defense found their rhythm. You know, whether it was Rex giving up play calling duties, I don't know what did it, but whatever sparked it, the defense came alive and it starts with this guy, 
right here, Lorenzo Alexander. He's, he's what, 33? 33 years old. He's going to be 34. This is his sixth team. And in nine years of playing pro football up to this point, he's only had nine sacks. Now he's got seven in the span of four games. Five games. Now, because he didn't get one the first week or the second week. But he still played. Oh, no, he still played, but I'm just saying, just, okay, so count the he's games had you sacks played. in how many games in a row? Four games in a row. A lot. Had sacks. The fact is, is that he is bringing it. And he's the reason Manny Lawson had to go. Because <laughs> the coaching staff saw the way he was playing and the intensity he was bringing to practices. He was bringing to, you know, the game, you know, preseason games. And they decided to Alexander. And I remember panning the idea that Alexander could be that guy. And then you've got Rex Ryan who comes out in a press conference this week and openly uses Alexander as, an, as a chance to take shots at Mario Williams. You know, he did nothing but praise Alexander. He said, you know, the guy, he's coming, he's done everything we asked him to, he's thrived in this system. You know, we've had him rushing, we've had him, you know, doing stunts in the running game. We've also had him dropping into coverage. And then he stopped and he says, ah, you know, I, I haven't heard a bitch yet about having to drop into coverage. So, you know, apparently that's not a problem anymore. I mean... The fact is, is this defense got better with the subtraction of Mario Williams. You know, I'm sorry to go way off. Austin Matthews has three goals on three shots. Jesus Christ. You know what? The suck my ass Austin Matthews campaign is in full. It's in full, full tilt now. Sorry, guys. I'm, as much as Drew is into the Buffalo Bills here, you take his enthusiasm and that Instagram video and you apply it to the Sabres and you have me. So we're going to move on to the zero from Sunday's game, and I'm pretty sure you already know who it's going to be. Tyrod Taylor. You blew it! I know it seems like everybody's piling on the guy and that he's an easy target and that it's like trying to hit at a pinata that's not even really hung up. It's just sitting on the table and maybe you're not blindfolded. But 124 yards of offense simply isn't good enough to win most NFL football games. What did he have against Baltimore? Like 119? Yeah, 119. You don't win many football games when you throw less than 200 yards. And what did I ask you earlier? Are three wins? You give me three reasons on each win. Is any of them Tyrod? No. No, absolutely not. We need our quarterback to win us some games if we want to get into the friggin' playoffs. I mean, the fact is we have a quarterback who's willing to, I mean, he's being smart. He's not turning the ball over. He's taking what the defense gives him. But at some point, we're going to have to open up our passing attack. Because once you fall behind, you know, once you fall behind in a game, one pass of 20-plus yards isn't going to cut it. And considering how he struggles with his intermediate accuracy, I really think that things could come downhill quickly for the Bills if we can't find a way to get this passing game opened up. And if he can't just, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. You know, I keep waiting for it to be, I keep waiting for it to be the day when he finally puts it all together and puts on a whole, you know, a quarterback performance. He throws 300 yards, maybe rushes for 20, 25, and we win a football game. The fact is, is I'm becoming more and more scared week by week watching him play that he's regressing instead of progressing and that we may never actually see that. In which case, we aren't a playoff football team without it. No, we need our quarterback to win us some frigging games. Like two years ago, there was the Oakland game after the Green Bay win. You know, that's a game that we needed. We lose. Last year, Kansas City. We're going to have one of those games 
towards the end of the season. It's just that's just what the Bills do. And unless Tyrod can figure it out and be able to win us games as a quarterback, because he's only done it once, Tennessee, we're not a playoff team. No, no, and I have to agree with that. And I hate it. I hate agreeing with that. But it's where we are. Woo! All right, folks. I'm about to open my seventh beer of the recording session. And we are going to get into, uh, we're going to move on here. More pleasurable topics. The AFC East Roundup. Now, (laughs) you want to talk about something that brings a smile to my face. Thanks to modern technology, I was able to sit back and watch two of the other teams in the AFC suck at football at the same time on Sunday. And it was pretty great. I have two flat screens. I've got multiple boxes down in my basement. It's, you know, a fully stocked wet bar. It's it's a pretty good time down there. And so I was able to have on one TV the New York Jets and on the other the Miami Dolphins. And I'll tell you, it it did my bitter black cold heart some, you know, it kind of warmed me up inside watching those two football games. I would rather get a back alley colonoscopy than have to watch those two football teams. <laughs> oh, I watched they them. sucked. I watched them and I reveled in every second of it. Dude, it tastes the beer tasted that much better just watching those two teams suck the way they did. I'm sorry guys, I'm going to tone it down. I'm that's hyperbole I guess, but the fact is, okay, first off, we're going to start with the Jets. The Jets kept the game with the Steelers close through halftime. You know, at one point the Jets were leading you know, they, they, they had the lead with 13 points. And then they went to half down, you know, 14 to 13. <laughs> but then as soon as they came out of the tunnel at halftime, it was all Steelers. Pittsburgh scored 24 unanswered points and sent the Jets to a 1-4 record. F- Fitzpatrick, I, I'll give him credit. He finally broke his interception hot streak. You know, the Jets offense, they're just not what they used to be. You look at it, they were they finished the game 2 of 11 for third down conversions and took three sacks in the second half that just snuffed out their comeback attempt. Now you've got calls for Geno Smith. <laughs> They're getting louder. Fans are starting to question you know, whether Todd Bowles is actually a good coach. Aside, does any of this sound familiar to Bills fans? Oh, wait, you mean you lost a bunch of football games and now everyone's questioning your coaching staff and your quarterback and everything else under the sun. That happens to Bills fans every two years. Welcome to our world, New York Jets. But the fact is is that more losing isn't going to help. And these guys, are they've got it coming up against them. I mean, they're going to fly out to Arizona to face the Cardinals on the road in what is pretty much a must-win game for both teams. The Cardinals are doing everything they can to try to climb back into the division race. And at the same time, the Jets, I mean, I think if you go one and five. Well, we're looking at a return for Carson Palmer, correct? Correct. So then you got uh, John Brown, Fitzgerald. Isn't there another Brown? Uh, Jerron Brown. Jerron Brown. How many times have the Jets been Burned deep. <laughs> oh, they helped out my fantasy team I mean, that's team what's killing the Sunday. Jets right now. The Jets' secondary is atrocious. It's it's incredible. When you went into the season, and you, if you watch Sep- the— I, I mean, it makes sense now. 71 yards to Salas, 81 to Goodwin, well, 72 gonna, to Coates on Sunday. <laughs> that's what I was going to say is it makes sense now in retrospect. 
I thought that seeing the yardage that Tyrod Taylor put up against the Jets was supposed to, that was supposed to build my confidence that he could get back there. You know, he can be a quarterback who throws 265. In reality, what that was was him throwing on one of the worst passing defenses in football. I mean, they're just not good. Their cor- Buster Screen is not good. He's not a good, he's not a great cornerback. He's an av- above average, slightly. Shouldn't the Jets like line up in like a hail mary prevent defense half the time? <laughs> no, but you know what? You know what else is killing them is uh, Kelvin Pryor. That the first round pick I panned it ever since they made it. Kelvin Pryor is not a good safety in coverage. He's a big hitter. He's good in those shallow zones, kind of hanging out just above the linebackers, protecting the seams. But if you take him deep, he routinely takes the wrong coverage route and just lets up big plays. And then you got to figure who else do they have? Marcus Gilchrist. They've got uh, what? Darrell Revis is probably, according to Joe Blewett from uh, Jet, Nation, Jet Radio. Nation Radio over there on their podcast, he said it himself. Darrell Revis is the third best cornerback on their team. That's terrifying. Gary from AFC East Bros has been saying this is where this season is where we see the drop off from Revis, and it's showing. Oh, it's showing. It's incredible. So the Jets are in a lot of trouble. And so are the Dolphins. I mean, the Dolphins went out at home and lost in brutal fashion on Sunday. I mean, that, it might yeah, have been—it might have been one of the most lopsided football games I've seen all season. I—I I say that one of the most because I watched the Dolphins play the Bengals last Thursday, and that I thought that was the most lopsided football game I'd ever seen. I think we had more people downstairs in your basement than actually went to that Titans-Dolphins game. Oh, that the stadium stands, was so dead. The stands were empty at the Dolphins game, and I don't blame them. I mean, the rough day started before kickoff. You know, an already banged-up offensive line, you're you're playing backups for backups at center. And then Laramie Tunsil, your first-round pick, falls in the shower and has to be declared inactive because his ankle swelled up. You mean he dropped the soap? <laughs> he did something, and it didn't get any better for the team from there. I mean, look at this. Right, t- they're, they're rushing. You know, the rushing attack. Okay, the offense was outrushed in Miami, two hundred and thirty-five to fifty-one. Mariota had more rushing yards himself than the Dolphins as a team. I mean, that's pathetic. Ryan Tannehill was held to one hundred and ninety-one yards passing, zero touchdowns, and two picks. I, what the hell kind of a stat line is that? That you look, you're not supposed to be Tyrod Taylor, but you look like you're putting up Tyrod Taylor stat lines, except no touchdowns and all interceptions. Who the hell are you throwing the ball to? And then the offensive line wasn't any better. They allowed six sacks, and the defensive line got zero sacks. Did you read that Miami released Dallas Thomas? Oh, I mean, it's incredible. They, they, I mean, they, they started releasing people this week. I mean, last two weeks ago, the coach was talking about benching players. Now they're cutting players. They're in trouble. I mean, like Todd Bowles and the Jets, seats are already starting to get hot over there. There's calls for Ryan Tannehill to be replaced. They've cut multiple players this week, as we were just alluding to. They're 100% another team that has to find a way to get better. And they got to do it in a hurry. They've got the Steelers coming up this week who just hung 30 on the Jets and are, the Jets arguably have a better defense than Miami. So um, I don't even know what to say about these two teams. Who are they? First off, how did we lose to the Jets? <laughs> yeah. 
How did we lose to that football team? That frustrates the hell out of me. And then I watch Miami and I say, what? I just, I'm looking for reasons to be afraid of them and I'm running out. I'm running out of reasons not to lump them into the same category as the Browns. Well, the Fitzpatrick didn't even, hasn't eclipsed 300 since week two. So you're good on your Seagrams. As he never will again. But the fact is, guys, the AFC East is struggling. And then I'm not going to bother talking about the Patriots. Okay, I'm not even going to talk about it. There's no offense to their fans or anyone who might who's listening to this podcast who might want to know how the Patriots game went. But by all accounts, it sounded an awful lot like they showed up in Cleveland to play some high school football team that was quarterbacked by Charlie Whitehurst. Okay, that that, that was my takeaway from what I saw in the brief flashes that I watched of the game, and that's all I need to know. And the funny thing is, hilariously enough, both Cody Kessler, rookie draft pick, and Charlie Whitehurst were both injured during the game because their offensive line is god-awful. What happened to Whitehurst? I didn't see that he got injured. I don't know. I, I read it in the post game. They're like, oh, well, both quarterbacks, you know, had to leave the game temporarily with injuries, and they don't now Charlie Whitehurst is questionable to play. It's like, Jesus Christ, who else are the Browns gonna dig up to stand under center and just get pummeled? For their next game. I don't even know who they're playing, but I don't think it matters. I'm pretty sure that the the Browns could take on, I don't know. You know how there's always those analogies when people say, oh, you know, this this college football team or that Alabama. college football It's always Alabama. <laughs> it's always Alabama because Alabama plays a pro-style offense. Everyone always says, oh, Alabama could beat so-and-so. Alabama could beat this team. Which generally is bullshit because there's no college football team on earth that's built for the physicality of playing against NFL starters. Those guys start because they are the best. You know, if you're if you're looking at 11 guys on the other side of a defense from you, in college you might be looking at 11 guys and one of them, maybe two of them are NFL starters. In the NFL, they're all good enough to play. So to say that a team like Alabama could come and play any NFL team and win is, is kind of laughable, and I've thought that for years. But I'm looking at the Browns, and I just don't – I mean, I honestly believe that Alabama could at least give them a run for their money. I mean, they're, they're an awful team. Awful team. So that's what happened around the AFC East this week. The Patriots stand one game ahead of us at 4-1. Their only loss coming to the Buffalo Bills. The Bills stand at 3-2 and two in second place in the AFC East. Everyone else is one and four. Everyone else is one and four. I mean, I think right now this is becoming a two horse, and neither one of their upcoming games look easy. You know, I honestly, I honestly believe that this might become a two horse race in our division. Which I know it's crazy for me to say that, or to believe that we might have a shot at this, but right now we're the only two who look close out of our division. And now, folks, as I uncork my seventh beer of the podcast, we're going to kick off this week's Week 6 preview. Buffalo Bills against against the San Francisco 49ers. The year was 2008. Fidel Castro had officially resigned as the dictator of Cuba. Barack Obama had just been elected. Christian Bale's The Dark Knight was the number one movie in the country. And the Billboard Song of the Year was Low by Flo Rida and T-Pain. 
any of you listen to this and like it, I have no respect for you. I hate this stuff. That, folks, is how long it's been since the Buffalo Bills won four games in a row. Crazy, right? I mean, it, it's incredible to think that we've gone eight years. Eight years without a four-game winning streak. What the hell is that? It just it just speaks to the ineptitude of our franchise over the course of the last decade. It's what you spoke to, was it last week on our podcast, with the whole stick it out with this regime, don't fire people. Yeah, you can't fire everybody because otherwise this is what you run into is more crap. We're, we're, it's been since 2008 since we had a four-game winning streak. <laughs> the game kicks off at New Era Field at 1 p.m. The weather? Looks like it's going to be in the mid-60s. 70% chance of rain, 15-mile-an-hour winds. It's going to make passing and kicking a little bit dicey. And the official for the game is Gene Sterator. As always, we're going to break down the opponent, kind of let our fans who are listening know what they should be looking for and what they're probably going to see on Sunday. But I'll admit it, I'm not much of an NFC West fan. And their teams are, I don't know, there's something of an unknown to me. So in order to get a better idea of what we're up against, I reached out to a fellow podcaster from the Seattle Seahawks SB Nation affiliate, FieldGulls.com, Lars Russell. And he was kind enough to share some of his insight with us. Now, first off, we're going to start with the offensive scouting report of the 49ers. They're 31st in yards per game. I would be, too, if Blaine Gabbert was my friggin' quarterback. <laughs> Blaine Gabbard, who is, I think he's got nine wins and 30-plus losses as a, as a quarterback in the NFL. They average 291.4 yards a game. They're 18th in points per game at 22.2. 8th in rushing yards per game with 121 and 10 sacks allowed, which is two sacks a game. Now, the quarterback change was made official by Chip Kelly this week. Just announced that we're going, to, we're going to make a move at quarterback and we're going to start calling this week. 49ers.com if you feel like you need to watch Chip Kelly speak. <laughs> and if you want some nostalgia, they also have a press conference from Curtis Mockins. Oh, God. Well, so the first question that I posed to our buddy Lars was about the quarterback change, about what we can see, you know, what might be different about the 49ers. And his response kind of concerns me. You know, it's it's not so much that I don't think that, you know, I still don't think that they're a giant threat. But when I read what he has to say, it kind of, it's, I don't know, it's unsettling. You know, this is from Lars Russell. My opinion of Kaepernick is probably a little higher than his performance the last two years have been. Just because he was so scary when he seemed like one of the biggest challenges to defenses in the league. You know, in the late 2012 through 2013. But I also imagined him getting to feature his strengths better in a Chip Kelly offense. And I still think that's true today. Garrett actually wasn't bad in the read option. You know, as far as 2016 is concerned, his problems with, you know, Blaine Gabbert, his accuracy issues were an anchor on San Francisco's offense. Kaepernick's accuracy was never his strength either, but he's been a much better thrower than Gabbert. We just haven't seen his arm after the surgeries he underwent this offseason, so it's hard to project confidently. So what that says to me is you've got a guy who's coming off of shoulder surgery. 
you don't know how he's, you know, it's on his throwing shoulder. You don't know how he's going to react to that. You don't know whether he has that same pop he used to. Because guys who, anyone who's been around the NFL long enough remembers when Kaepernick was in his prime, what it what he was like a he was like a taller, more sturdily built version of Tyrod Taylor. He went vegan, so he, he lost a lot of weight. He wasn't good. The, my thing, I don't know about the vegan thing. What I know no, he, about no, is that he legitimately. I'm telling okay, you, okay, you can tell me that, but I don't. I, I don't give no. a shit about it. I've been listening to because I, I work. I'll listen to some national people like Clay Travis and Colin Coward. He went vegan. He lost weight. He's down like 20 pounds from what he was a couple years ago. And don't forget, he his first sport is baseball. So when he throws a football, he's throwing it like a pitcher, which is as hard as you can. Well, that explains why he's always sucked when it comes to his intermediate accuracy. You know, he that's why I kind of compare Colin Kaepernick to Tyrod Taylor. He's taller. He maybe sees the defense a little bit better, which helps him when he's running, helps him when he's throwing. But at the end of the day, they're both the same type of quarterback. They use their mobility to their advantage, and they run the read option. But at the same time, they can both uncork a deep ball if you are if you become too conservative and try to play the run too tightly. That scares me because we haven't played a quarterback like that all season. Now, I don't know if his shoulder is going to be what it used to be. But I just the Colin Kaepernick I remember could throw the ball like Uncle Rico a quarter mile over the mountains. <laughs> See, I watched uh, some of the clips because I don't have cable up here in my South Buffalo res. Watch ESPN on my Roku. They had a clip talking about this. I don't even know who the analyst was from ESPN, but they said all of the reports coming out of San Francisco, if you were to rank all three quarterbacks in practice— Kaepernick's by far the worst of the three. <laughs> well, we can only hope. Next up on the uh, offensive preview here is the rushing attack. Now, anyone who follows fantasy football can tell you that Carlos Hyde touches the ball a lot. Okay, he is their workhorse. Kind of how the Bills look. I mean, I mean, I feel like the two weeks in a row we're playing teams that are kind of a mirror of each other. You've got a read option quarterback, and you've got a team that feeds its running back as much as it can. Now, Carlos Hyde is averaging 21 carries per game, and his team is eighth in rushing per game right now. They utilize a zone blocking scheme, and game over game, it looks like a large portion of Hyde's yardage has come from running behind right guard and center because what they do, they come out with these unorthodox setups where the wide receivers are either split out, double stacked on the right, double stacked on the left, double stacked with a tight end on the line. What it does is it draws all of the linebackers out of the box and then opens up running lanes for the running back. This is straight up college football. This is college football coaching. And it's working to the running game's advantage. You know, a lot of Hyde's yardage has come because he's only trying to beat one defender. Now, that combined with Colin Kaepernick now being under center, it makes him dangerous because even if he's not the same thrower he used to be, the guy's athleticism makes him a weapon. If we bite too hard on the rush or the play fake, he has the ability to really hurt us with his legs. And at the same time, Carlos Hyde's a great running back. He really is. I mean, he's carrying my fantasy football team in the league that's going to smash Chris this week. Dude, 
I'm, I just, because I got Roberto Aguayo and they're on a bye. I had to pick up a new kicker for this week. Dude, I'm, I'm a 10 point favorite on you. You're, you're trash to me. Oh. You're trash to me. You're, you're. I'm going to wipe the floor with my team. Plainfield pest control. I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that Chip Kelly might not be a great coach, but his rushing attacks are usually pretty good because he brings a lot of college concepts to the NFL and it's not anything anyone's used to. Which leads me to my next point. Their quirky play calling and audible system. Anybody who's watched the 49ers play this season might wonder, why does the offense run to the line, look like they're going to snap it, and then suddenly all look to the sideline before shuffling and shifting and eventually snapping the ball? If you've watched any college football, you I knew at the moment I saw it, I'm like, he's running college schemes. In a typical offense, the play call comes from the offensive coordinator to the head coach, who then relays it to the quarterback, who then tells the players the play. And then once he gets to the offensive line, audibles based on his pre-snap reads. That is football. But since Chip Kelly wants the fastest offense, you know, and he can't get away from those just deep ingrained college roots, Chip Kelly calls the plays. And then after the play, you know, the base play is set, he calls basically what is a base. He tells them what formation to line up in. Then he has his assistant standing on the sideline with giant, just like flashcards and signs, which, you know, just like they do in college. If you've ever watched a college football game, they have signals and they have different, you know, signatures and signs and pictures which are supposed to signify to the offense a certain formation, a certain audible, a certain play call. So really, the quarterback isn't having to think. The quarterback just has to read and react. The quarterback has to show up, snap the ball, see what he sees, make the right read. But the coach is the one telling the players where to be, which speeds up the play calling process. So I understand what Chip Kelly's trying to do. I really I really do. You know, it's just, it, it's gimmicky. So you're not a fan of Chip Kelly. Oh, I hate Chip Kelly. I hate Chip Kelly, but not only that, but I hate anybody who tries to bring college football to the NFL level. There's a reason you're one in four, Chip Kelly. He doesn't have a team. No, it's because San Francisco's trash. His approach to the team is that, hey, I'm going to run as many plays as I can as fast as I can because that's going to get me back in football. That's going to keep me on top in football games. Guess what? Your offense sucks. Your offense sucks, and that's why you've been, you know, as we're about to touch on, that's why you've been trailing in almost every single every single game at halftime, except for the first one, which doesn't count because it was a shutout. See, we're in different boats on this because I actually like Chip Kelly as a head coach, and I think he's going to do great in the NFL once he tanks this season and finally gets a quarterback of his choosing in the draft. Anybody should be given a medal that gets Nick Foles 27 touchdowns and two interceptions. You should be given a medal. All right. Well, I, I don't I can't speak to that. What I can say is this. I'm willing to believe that there's some merit to being able to catch defenses off guard. And that's what this play calling system of Chip Kelly's does. Because defenses are looking for the quarterback to make the calls, to be reading the defense, they watch his eyes. You know, you talk to safeties. They always talk about, oh, I saw the quarterback's eyes, and that's how I read the play. Well, now the quarterback's not the one making the call. It's coming from the sideline. It's coming in faster. The offense is shifting faster and getting the snap off faster, 
which can catch a lot of defenses off guard. And I think it's a lot of reasons. That's a lot of the reason why Carlos Hyde has so many rushing yards. They put all these unorthodox formations out there. They spread the defense out. And when they all vacate the responsible areas, Hyde just runs through them. Okay? That's what I've seen through my film study of the 49ers. This is absolutely something I expect Dennis Thurman and Rob Ryan to drill our defensive players on. You know, to be ready for this unorthodox style of play calling. An audible assignment. Because if you mix all of that in with the read option ability of Colin Kaepernick plus Carlos Hyde, it could be a devastating combination to an unprepared defense. Now, the one funny thing I did <laughs> know was that last season, Rex isn't a stranger to this. Yeah, he's seen it before because last year we played Philly. And when we played Philly, he employed the same thing. He did the same thing there in Philadelphia. And because Rex hates the idea and thinks it's absurd, he decided to troll Chip Kelly. I mean, ultimately, we lost the game, so I don't know how smart it was. But I always that's the one thing I like about Rex. He's willing to troll the opposing coach. He's re, he just likes to have fun. So he's there on the sideline. Here's Chip Kelly's guys flashing signs and, you know, all this stuff. And they've got all these different symbols and things written on cardboard. And here's, you know, Rex Ryan recruits a bunch of staffers to hold up signs with Buffalo-themed pictures on them. That didn't mean anything. He didn't, like, none of them meant anything. He just meant to screw with Chip Kelly, trying to figure out what he was trying to do. I mean, the pictures, one of them was a chicken wing. There was a picture of Niagara Falls. One of them was even a headshot of Rob Ryan, just on a giant sign. Hey, do you think that he'll do it again this year, but he'll have, like, a photo of a chicken wing, but then a headshot of Eric Stryker? Oh, my God. I'll tell you, if if he if he trolls Chip Kelly again with the sign thing, it'll be one of the best parts of the entire game for me. It really will be. I mean, that's the Rex we all know and love, right? And it's going to be even better because it's a home game, and you'll get to visually see it. Oh, absolutely. I'll get to see it in person. So then that brings us to the defensive scouting report. The defense of the San Francisco 49ers, they're 13th in yards allowed per game. Now, Buffalo ranks 18th, just to put that into comparison. They're 25th in sacks. They're 31st in rushing yards allowed. And they're 10th in pass defense. 233 yards per game passing offense is what they're allowing. And in rushing yards per game, they're averaging 146 a game against. Now, I'll say it right now. We're going to start off. The first thing i got to say is their run defense is porous. I mean, they're 31st in the league. Don't let the stat of yards allowed per game. The fact that they're rated above the Buffalo Bills, don't let that stat fool you. You'd think that seeing that they're ranked higher than us would mean that they have probably a more stout defense than we do. But after watching the tape and looking over the box scores, I can tell you with a lot of certainty that that is not the case. Generally speaking, teams that have played the San Francisco 49ers are just opting not to, you know, they're opting not to, they're running rather than passing on the 49ers late in games because they generally have the lead by halftime. And at that point, they come out of the locker room. They're just looking to run the clock out. This also kind of skews their pass defense numbers. When you see that they're the 10th best passing defense for yards per game in the NFL, you're questioning, well, then how are they 1-4? No. Well, it's because they're already down 24-0 or 24-7 to in halftime. I mean, 
teams are coming out against them in the second half of football games and deciding that all they want to do is run the football. And that is causing fewer passing yardage, fewer passing yards, which is kind of buffering their numbers. I mean, let's take a look at this. Against Carolina, their last four losses, Carolina, they were down by 21 in the third quarter. You know, the score was 31 to 10. Seattle the following week, they're down 27. The score was 30 to 3 in the third quarter. Dallas, it was a 21-17 game. They were down by four in the third quarter. And against Arizona this past Thursday, they were down by seven, which is 21 to 14 in the third quarter. They've trailed in the second half of every single football game they've played for the last four weeks. That right there should tell you what their defense is worth. I mean, Navarro Bowman was their best defensive player. And they had Ray Ray Armstrong, who was helping him out in the middle of the defense. They were the playmakers for the D. And even with them, they weren't great against the run. But now that both of them are out of the lineup due to offseason, en- you know, uh, not offseason, but season-ending injuries, the defense immediately responds. Navarro Bowman got lost late in the Dallas game. The next week, they come out without him and give up 157 yards rushing to David Johnson. And over 100 of his yards came just rushing on the edges of the defense, off tackle and off guard. It's crazy. Their defense is atrocious. I I think they absolutely can be run on by the Buffalo Bills. So if you have LaShawn McCoy on your fantasy team, start him. Bang! Welcome to my world, sweetheart. Oh, that's where Chris. That's where Chris uh, across the table from me is going to lose this game this week. Is because of McCoy. Yeah, because of McCoy. Yeah, my ass. I'm going to smoke you. Ah. Uh, so the next thing I noticed about the uh, San Francisco 49ers was their subpar pass defense. You're talking tenth. You know, they haven't been much better in reality than than the uh, than the rushing defense. This is another case where the numbers lie to you when you look at them on paper. I mean, they're ranked as having the 10th stingiest passing defense for yardage, but they've allowed 10 passing touchdowns on the season. Compare that to Buffalo allowing two touchdowns passing on the season. Don't worry. Just take a second. Think about that. 10 touchdowns to our two. Yet they're rated the 10th best passing defense because of the yardage. I took a look over the last four games, and I think at the point I'm about to make feeds into the next point I'm about to make. Teams absolutely abuse these guys through the air. Over the last four games, they've given up 14 passes of 20 or more yards, good for 475 yards and four touchdowns. That's the equivalent of 119 yards per game worth of passes of more than 20 yards. These guys are giving up chunk yardage through the air deep. I mean, they're getting beat, whether it's deep left, deep middle, deep right. They're getting spanked when quarterbacks drop a, you know, when an OC draws up a good play and a quarterback isn't afraid to uncork it on them. They're just getting beaten down by the deep passing game, which would seem to play right into Buffalo's hands. My next point, inconsistent pass rush. Now, all these deep passes I was just talking about are a product of the fact that the 49ers just can't generate pressure with their four-man rush. 
their front seven isn't the best in the entire world. I mean, outside linebacker Ahmad Brooks leads the team with two sacks on the season. He is the team leader. This this inability to get pressure by themselves forces them to have to blitz in order to generate pressure. So I watched. I went back, I pulled up the All-22 footage, and I watched a lot of the biggest, some of these deep balls that got thrown on them for touchdowns. The thing is, they get burned when they try to blitz. Because what they do is they they say, okay, we're going to send a blitz, but we're going to commit a safety inside the box to cover a shallow zone where the blitzing linebacker, whoever it would be, if we blitz one, we blitz two. If they blitz two linebackers, they drop both safeties into the box in a shallow zone. They're assuming that their pass rush is going to get there, but if they're employing backup linebackers as those blitzing interior linebackers, they're not getting home. And what ends up happening is a home run throw down down the sideline. I mean, it's incredible how bad they are at pressuring a quarterback. Sounds like some uh, deep passes to Goodwin could be in order. Oh, and absolutely. Or draw plays for McCoy. Absolutely. I think after if, if they blitz us and we can get past that first wave, or if Tyrod can stay in the pocket long enough to get somebody open deep, we can absolutely expose this defense. I mean, they're weak. They're soft. Our offensive line should be able to stop their pass rush out of base formations. I mean, they've got Quinton Dial and Ahmad Brooks. Those are the only real pass rushing threats they have. And I think that's going to work to buy Tyrod time to find his matchups or force them to blitz, which should open up more receivers in the passing game. This is a perfect game where we can get the screen game going with LaShawn McCoy. Now they blitz. Okay, send LaShawn out into the flat and then just watch him burn them for, you know, even if it's 10 yards, 15 yards at a time. Because they don't have cornerbacks who can cover a guy like that. I mean, it's 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 incredible when you look at how poor their defense as a whole has been playing. And that brings us to another section here where, you know, players you may not know but should. Now, for this section, again, I went back to our friend Lars from Field Goals to see what he, who he thought were some of the under-the-radar names that Bills fans should be ready to hear on Sunday. And he gave me an offensive player and a defensive player. On defense, you've got Eric Reed, And this is what he had to say. What position is that? Eric Reed plays safety. He's On defense, I would probably go with Eric Reed since Aaron Lynch is only one game back from suspension. San Francisco's defensive line doesn't get pressure, and in addition to Bowman, linebacker Ray Armstrong has also gone for the season. Reed can play a deep safety with nearly as much range as Seattle's Earl Thomas, but he's also effective around the line of scrimmage and out in the flats covering running backs. He frees up the 49ers to do weird things in nickel and blitzing corners and stuff like that. Reed is part of the LSU family of defensive backs that produced Patrick Peterson and the Honey Badger, and he's probably healthier than in any season he's been as a pro. So Eric Reed is definitely going to be a player to watch because he's going to be deployed all over the field, whether it's deep, whether it's at the line, whether it's to offset a blitz coming from the other side. He's a guy that they're going to use. And then on offense, Jeremy Curley, familiar name for all of you out there who follow the AFC East. If Kyle Smith doesn't like Jeremy Curley, then neither do I. <laughs> well, this is what Lars Russell had to say about Jeremy Curley. Jeremy Curley has probably been the best offensive tool for the 49ers so far. 
you're likely at least a little familiar with Curley from his Jets days. New York released him this offseason. He was signed by Detroit, but the Lions traded him to San Francisco just before the end of the preseason, and he's on pace for easily his best year since 2012. More importantly, he's been by far the most productive receiver for Gabber, with twice as many catches as anyone else and more yards than the rest of the wide receivers combined. Torrey Smith was supposed to be the deep threat for that team, but Curley's yards per reception matches Smith on three times as many catches. Curley basically was the passing game during the first halves against Seattle and Arizona. Now that quote right there says everything you need to know. It sounds an awful lot like Torrey Smith doesn't have a lot of chemistry with any of these guys yet. Now, I think the shifting quarterback might affect that because it seems like Curley was the guy who I saw with my own two eyes catch a lot of shallow balls and just chew his way down the field. But Colin Kaepernick doesn't strike me as that kind of a quarterback. He's always been the, I'm going to fake the run and then throw a deep guy. So Torrey Smith might actually become a guy to worry about because of this. I mean, they're both great points, and I appreciate Lars giving me his insights that we could kind of flesh out this preview of the 49ers for you guys. And don't worry, we will try to get Lars on when we play Seattle. Oh, absolutely. He's going to come on the show with us, and he's going to help us preview the Seattle Seahawks. But that brings us to our keys to victory. The Bills want to beat the San Francisco 49ers. they got to do a couple things. First off, offensive line needs to impose its will in both the pass and run blocking. I mean, the defensive line of the 49ers isn't an imposing group. Okay, They don't have any scary time. Alden Smith is gone. Justin Smith is gone. They, they, they don't have any top-end talent on that defensive line. So it's going to be on Wood, Incognito, and everybody else up there to set the tone early. Go out there and punch those guys in the mouth. You know, they need to come out as the aggressors. Set the tone with some dirty run blocking. You know, and then, then in pass blocking, be sure that you're keeping Tyrod clean. Show them that they can't, those you know, four or five guys aren't going to get a push on us man-to-man. Then the next one is get an early lead. Now, I know that that kind of seems like, you know, it's cliched. But the 49ers have struggled when trying to play from behind all season. And the stats that I just read off to you earlier kind of signify that. They've gone into every single third quarter of the last four games down by at least one score, if not more. One touchdown or more. So... Ultimately, what you look at is we have to get up early on this team and then not let up on them because they're not a team that's built to come from behind. They they don't have a whole lot of speed on the outside. They have one good deep receiver. They've got a bunch of just kind of fill-ins. Their offensive line doesn't necessarily block the best. You know, they've allowed a lot of sacks. So I think that this is an that's an opportunity for us. If we can get an early lead, our defense can really kind of let loose with some blitzes and, you know, our defense can really kind of put them in check throughout the second half like most of the other teams that have beat them have done. And then finally, the third key to victory, contain the read option on D. Colin Kaepernick's going to be their starter, so you're going to see some new wrinkles added into their offense. I guarantee it. You know, they're not going to be the same 49ers that played last week against Arizona or against any other team, for that matter. 
We need to do what the Ravens did to Tyrod Taylor. Keep Colin Kaepernick in the pocket and force him to beat us with his arm. Because that gives our our pass rushers an opportunity to get to work. We cannot allow Colin Kaepernick to get out of the pocket and do what Tyrod does to other teams. You know, when you look at what Arizona did, Tyrod got out, and when he got out, he was devastating to them. I mean, and and based on the following audio, it's clear that their offensive coordinator, Curtis Monkins, understands what our front seven is all about. They're like any other Rex Ryan defense. They can pass rush you, pass rush you in a lot of different ways with a lot of different people. Uh, you know, in the normal pass rush, you know, they have a really, really effective, really good pass rush in Jerry Hughes. And then on the other end, they've got a guy that's leading the league in sacks right now. So they've got some individual guys that can rush the passer. They've got inside guys and Kyle Williams, who I, I was who I was with for three years, who really understands get off and how to get to the pass rusher. And they'll get, I'm sure Marcel uh, Darius will be back. Uh, he's a really good pass rusher. So they're able to generate it with different people. But in their base pass rush, guys, pass rush, they have good people doing it. That comes from 49ers.com. And I'll be honest, <laughs> he he recognizes it. Curtis Mockins, their offensive coordinator, knows that we're going to come. We're going to come at you because that's what Rex Ryan's all about. He has an aggressive defense. But having said that, I'm fully prepared for Rex Ryan to kind of come out with a more hesitant defense at first. He wants them to try to play their hand because they're anticipating that we're just going to open the floodgates. Let's try to blitz Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick's running ability could absolutely be devastating to a team that over-pursues. That's my fear. That's my fear for this football game is that we over-pursue Colin Kaepernick. With his shoulder, I don't think he can beat us, but... With his legs, he's a he's a great athlete. Yeah, and you want know for me, it's it's amazing because we play you play the NFC every four years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally been four years mm-hmm. since we were in San Francisco, October seventh, twenty twelve. Okay, guys, can I can I inter- I got to interject here with a story. There's one thing I'll never forgive the 49ers for. And that was I was driving into work and I got to hear on WGR the audio clip from the San Francisco broadcast of that Bills game. Anyone who watched it knows it was a beatdown. I drank forty-five to three. I drank so much I had to go to bed at halftime. I woke up, it was already over, and I wasn't upset. So I was driving to work the next day, and what I heard was a call that came from the 49ers game. And it was of the announcer who was talking about how they were on, you know, the 49ers were on, I think it was the 10 or 15-yard line. And they were like, oh, Alex Smith, he drops back to pass. Up, oh, up, oh, and he fumbles the football, and the Bills have it. The Bills are running, and they're running it back. Oh, oh, and they, they, might, be, they might get into the end zone. Ah, we're just kidding. Oh, Alex Smith with a 15-yard touchdown run. <laughs> I'll never forgive you for that, 49ers fans, and your team. I'll hate you forever. Because <laughs> that moment right there was devastating to me. I just, dude. That your announcer took it upon himself to troll the Bills on the air because the game had turned that lopsided. It's amazing how four years you can fall that far for the 49ers. Harbaugh's gone. He's at Michigan. And now you're stuck with Chip Kelly. <laughs> who 
Won't be very good until he gets a quarterback. Hopefully we kick his balls in this weekend. So the question becomes, what are our predictions for the game? Chris, what do you got? Trap game. I picked against the Bills all season, and I've been wrong all season. So I will continue to pick against the Bills in hopes that they will show up and win. I'm going to go with a 20-14 to San Francisco win. I'm going to call a Buffalo Bills victory based on LaShawn McCoy has been kept out of the end zone now for a while. I mean, he what does he have, two touchdowns in the season? I don't know. He didn't, he didn't get one last week. No, he didn't get one last week. He rushed for 150 yards, and then Mike Gillisley vultured his touchdown. Oh. I say this week he gets into the end zone both in the passing game and the running game. Tyrod throws a pass and a pick. And we win this football game 24-14. to 14. Okay? That's my prediction. Guys, what are your, what's your prediction? Tweet at us, at Rockpile Report. I want to hear it. I want to I know what you guys think about this upcoming game. You know, and be ready for game day. I'm going to be tweeting. He's going to be on Twitter. We may even do a Facebook Live from the tailgate. Yeah, we do have Gary Smith from the AFC East Bros podcast in town this weekend for the game. He will be tailgating with us. He will be with us for our Facebook Live on Saturday. And Chris's brother bought him a tripod that's like something you'd see out of a news studio. So I have a feeling we're going to get that out at some point this weekend. So for all of you guys out there who want to check in on us while we're uh, enjoying our pregame festivities, feel free. And then that brings us to one of the last things I want to touch on here. International fan shout-out. You don't know how much it means to me that we've gotten to a point where there's people outside of the United States who are appreciating the Rockpile Report. So I want to give a shout-out to two fans who tune into every podcast, and they just always seem to be in touch with us. First off, Tomas Braunmeier. Now, Tomas Braun... probably I, just... Butcher no, I swear I shit spent, out of I his spent name. a lot of time today Googling this. And, t- and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But Thomas Bronmeier, he hails from Sweden. Fucking Sweden. All right. <laughs> He's a teacher. And he religiously follows us via the Rock Power Report Facebook page. Now, besides his sweet bow ties and flat caps, I think my favorite thing about him is the fact that he's a big fan of Moto Hockey Club out of Orange, I don't want to butcher this, Orange Skoldsvik, Sweden. Now that's where current Buffalo Sabre goalie Linus Olmark played. That's awesome. He's got multiple ties to Buffalo. It's fantastic. We love the fit. And then for those of you, like if you've never seen it, you know how you can order a custom jersey? The guy has his own custom Bills jersey with his last name on the back of it. I actually think that that's a jersey foul. And it's his no, and it's his profile picture on Facebook. I'm telling you. This guy, I love the fact that from all the way in Sweden, he follows our our fucking podcast. Thomas, thank you so much for your support. Hey, listen, follow us on Twitter, reach out to me on Facebook. Don't be a stranger. And then Steve O'Malley. O'Malley, you <laughs> sarcastic fuck. Steve One o- of these days I'll have a podcast where it's completely edited to perfection. <laughs> Steve O'Malley is a Bills fan hailing from England. Don't worry, folks. I vetted it. He actually used the phrase rubbish on Twitter more than once. So he's got to be fucking English. 
<laughs> this guy once had the balls to ask via Twitter if we could issue, if the Rock Pile Report could issue fewer pictures of me drinking and yelling at football and more of my girlfriend in tight shorts. O'Malley, his lady <laughs> loves the NHL. So you continue to bash us, or at least not us, but me specifically on Twitter for what you're going to have a long winter of NHL speak from the from our Twitter handle at Rockpile Report. You're also insulting Drew's girlfriend. Eh, I don't care so much about that. <laughs> Since then, though, he's endeared himself to us, and we love the support. So. Guys, this week, be sure, you know, we're going to get out of here. Be sure to follow us on Facebook Live, okay? Chris and I have a fantasy football bet to make. I mean, we're playing each other. It's the first time I've ever played Chris in fantasy football. He's 5-0. I'm 4-1. and one. We're leading each of our divisions. I don't really think that we've decided on a bet yet. Oh, no. We're going to announce the bet on our Facebook Live on Saturday over at Bill's Fanatics BF on Facebook. Yeah, we do not. Neither of us have players going on Thursday. So we. I know I had tweeted out that it, tonight we're going to announce our, our gentleman's bet. Somebody offered dog food. Celeste offered one of us <laughs> dressed like a woman. Somebody said do a shot every time you guys get three points. I was like, that's not going to work because I'll just drink Chris onto the table. You've and then I, doing, I won't know what to do with the rest of You've been doing night. that all, all season. <laughs> you're what? Set, what are you, seven in? What are you, You're seven in? Well, beer watch. Speaking of beer watch, so before the podcast, we took count of the board. I'm at 72 and Chris is at what? No, you're not at, I'm at 72. I'm at 50, 52, and you're at 26. Yes. I am exactly double you, and together, and together we combine for what, 78? Yeah, 78 beers through five weeks. <laughs> so uh, that I, that's somewhere between our predictions. I said 225 before the season. Well, Drew said 269. I think we're somewhere somewhere in the middle right now through five weeks as our projection. We're also going to get up and talk about, I don't know, what's going on in college football. We're going to talk about the 49ers on the eve before the game. You know, If there's any late-breaking injury news, we're going to have it. We're going to have a lot of stuff to cover on Saturday night. So be sure to tune in over at Facebook.com slash BillsFanaticsBF. Exactly. Go check that out. We'll be on Facebook Live. And if you haven't yet, 506sports.com. We are, it's, it's, Technically, the surrounding San Francisco area and most of New York State, southern Pennsylvania. San Francisco is coming to Buffalo, so Fox will be entering the game. Dick Stockton and former giant David Deal on the call. No Spiro Ditas because it's on Fox. We apologize for that. And CBS also apologizes for that. But we are exiting... The podcast right now. <laughs> I'm Chris Kruger, the producer. That is your host, Drew Gear. This has been the Rockpile Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.